Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to a bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you here as always. Appreciate you joining the Buck Sexton Show. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Oh, there are so many things to discuss today. We have the possibility of an Oprah presidency. We have the Golden Globe Awards, which I did not watch one minute of live, but because of all of the political stuff involved with the Golden Globes, uh, we I looked at it afterwards and read some transcripts. We'll talk a bit about that. The Golden Globe, Hollywood's big Me Too on the red carpet moment, and then. And perhaps we'll discuss, or rather we will discuss, the looming debt ceiling fight that will have at its center immigration reform, immigration security, DACA, all of that. Uh, Later on the show, we'll be joined by Selena Zito to talk about rural America. You had President Trump speaking to farmers today in Nashville, and we will also be joined by a spokesperson from the White House, one of uh, one of Trump's press secretaries talked to us about the agenda for the coming year, because we're still early enough that we want to know what 2018 looks like and so or is going to look like. So we have that. Plus, there's the Mueller interview of Trump that may happen. If we have time, we'll get into that as well. Um, I have to say that my view of (laughs) the Golden Globes, as somebody who did not watch it, is that this is tied into uh, why you have the current president that you do. Hollywood doesn't have to be a giant preach fest of self-righteousness. They could just be entertainers. They could be content to do what we pay them to do. But instead, they use every opportunity to leverage the public attention that they have as a result of being part of a, granted, very prominent and uh, lucrative industry, Hollywood, and lecture all the rest of us about how we should go about our day-to-day lives. That there is a uh, Me Too movement specific to the red carpet is interesting because there are so many Women, notably Meryl Streep and others, who are at the very top of the Hollywood power structure, who decided that they would be quite quiet all along, quiet about what was going on, what they were hearing. It's one thing for a person who's struggling to pay his or her bills to speak truth to power. I understand. Right? You don't want to be the martyr that no one knows about for a cause that is immediately forgotten. I get it. But for the Meryl Streeps and others of Hollywood, you would think 
perhaps there could be a bit more introspection. Just just a little bit more of a like, hey, less lecturing the country would be a good idea. Less pretending that they were on the forefront, that they're part of the vanguard of this uh, Me Too movement. But you see, the problem with self-righteousness, the problem with virtue signaling, which is raised to its own art form on the left. Hollywood excels at it, but you know, if you got a couple of leftist Democrat buddies on Twitter or Facebook, I'm sure you've seen plenty of virtue signaling, is that it is hollow, and therefore those who have a compulsion feel the need to show everyone else how great they are, not by actually doing anything that is great, not by being great, but just by taking certain political positions, those people are never going to be satisfied. Uh, they can never get enough attention for their positions. They can never uh, hold themselves up as examples of bravery when they are, in fact, just doing what serves their short-term self-interest. So I, I don't know how much we really need to spend on the Hollywood uh, Golden Globes situation. I, as I said, I did not watch it. I was busy working a little history podcast called Shield High. That is up today. First episode, Charles Martel, The Hammer. You can listen on iTunes or on the iHeart app. Just type in Shields High. Please do subscribe. If you're a live listener to this show, uh, you need to subscribe one way or another, iTunes being a very good one, so that you will get this and each future episode of the podcast as it comes along. But I digress. I did spend part of my weekend reading this Fire and Fury book. I didn't finish it. I was busy uh, reading about, well, history in in Europe in the uh, early 8th century, because that's how I party. Buck knows how to party. He likes to read about uh, the cavalry advantage of the uh, Umayyad dynasty over the Franks, stuff like that. But I read some of this Fire and Fury book, which has got everybody, oh, in the media at least, in, in a tizzy. Everyone's all spun up and fired up and freaking out about this Trump-bashing book. And I feel like there's not much that really needs to be said other than the fact that the author, Wolf, uh, Michael Wolf, right, uh, he said that in, in interviews this weekend, if it rings true, then it is true. If it rings true, it is true. There could really be no better definition of fake news. That is, he did us a favor. It reminds me of Nancy Pelosi saying, you know, if you have to pass this bill to see what's in it, because then we knew that with Obamacare, the Democrats were just, they were interested in, in putting government in charge of health care, the details the details could be worked out later. With this book, which is now at the top of the bestseller list and has gotten all this attention, this British uh, tabloid journalist has really distilled, in a way, the true essence of fake news. It's not that the media is concocting things wholesale about Trump to take him down in general. They are doing that sometimes. But that's not really the central component of fake news. I've talked to you before about how if the media was doing this in good faith, 
at some point there would have to be, it just is a numbers game, there would have to be a retraction of a story or an update of a central component of a story from a major media outlet that was positive about Trump. But it is 100% negative stories that turn out to be false. That is clear evidence of an agenda at work. And the notion that if it rings true, it is true, is the guiding principle. This author has done us all something of a service here because he has outlined for us the guiding principle of what, why we have so much fake news. What is the reason for this deluge of falsehoods propagated by an anti-Trump, anti, really anti-Republican, right? It's, they were just as nasty in many ways to Republicans before, just with Trump. They've added a level of hysteria on top of it. Their hatred burns maybe a little more brightly, but they've always hated the opposition. They hate Republicans. They don't like conservatives. Uh, but if it rings true, it must be true. That's why you have such rampant uh, need for corrections of major media stories about Trump. That's why you have these big stories from places like the Washington Post, from CNN, that are enormous blunders because the journalists, so-called, uh, the editorialists, the fact checkers, the people that are writing for these major anti-Trump organizations in their minds are operating under this principle. If it rings true, it is true. Well, clearly that is false. But if that's your approach, you can see how you can make a lot of mistakes. And what rings true for the left wing never Trump media is anything that bashes the president, anything that denigrates this uh, White House and all those who work in it and all those who support it, quite honestly. If it's bad about Trump, it must be true. That's really what they mean to say. And this, the book is just a pile of nonsense. I mean, the, the book is, I, I will admit that I, I feel compelled to read it because it's become such a big news story. It reminds me of Hillary and what happened? It reminds me of the need that I had then, the obligation to see how Hillary was going to try and blame others for her loss and, and justify her role in American politics going forward, despite being a two-time shoe-in and yet presidential loser. With this book about the president, what you see is that the the, the gloves came off a long time ago, and now it's just a frenzy. Now it's some kind of media berserker rage against the president where they will even say, yeah, so some of the stuff we're saying is false. But, you know, it's overall true. This isn't new to them, I should, I should add. Dan Rather. Yes, Dan Rather, who used to be paid a lot of money to read off a prompter like this, have his hair fixed just so. Dan Rather said about the National Guard documents with President George W. Bush that, you know, there was truth there. And in fact, they made a movie recently about Dan Rather's whole falsified, fake, yeah, fake news, National um, Guard escapade where he made, uh, he ran with forged documents. They made a movie called Truth about Dan Rather. The idea being that, well, yeah, the, the documents were fake, but the story was still somehow true. Do you have any proof of that? No. But as you can see, to the media, it rings true. 
Oh, well, in that case, oh, that's all you had to say. It rings true. The documents were fake, but it rings true. Imagine if you presented this as evidence in court. Uh, Your Honor, uh, we have this uh, following exhibit to show you. And uh, objection, Your Honor, that is completely fake. Well, well, yes, Your Honor, it's fake, but uh, as evidence goes. But the overall story we're trying to tell that you're that uh, the defendant is a murderer. That's true. But well, why are you running with a fake a fake exhibit, right? Why is exhibit A fake? Well, you know, it rings true. And that's what that's what the media is falling back on at this point, because things are for them looking a little bleak right now. They're not going to they're not going to take down this White House with the Russia Trump stuff. I don't think I don't think it's going to happen. And I think they're a little worried about it. And they're never going to regain their credibility with whatever percentage of Americans have recently become disgusted with them because of the way that they've covered Donald Trump in the past. There's no turning back for them now. So what do they do? They, they go with the, uh, the kitchen sink routine. You're just throwing everything at it. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. And maybe I'll give you my thoughts on Oprah. You know, look, yeah, we'll hold that for a moment here. Oprah running for president. Uh, Another, you know, I can tell you this, and some of you are probably going to say, yeah, Buck, me too. Everyone's always, Miss Molly was amazed when I told her this recently. I've actually never seen a full, I've never watched an Oprah show. I mean, I may have been on in the background sometime, but I've never actually seen the show, uh, Oprah show, in my entire life. People say that's just not possible. And you know, I say to them, I've also never seen the movie Grease, so there's some things that I just missed, or Gone with the Wind for that matter, or... Uh, yeah, I'll say it. I got about 10 minutes into Citizen Kane and I'm like, this is boring. I'm done. I know. I know. I'm, I'm losing points here. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Got to talk about immigration coming up this hour. Oh, that Miller Tapper throwdown. Ooh, that was spicy. That was a spicy amitabal. Uh, we'll check that out and much more. Stay with me. I can't. Very interesting piece here from The Hill. One of my uh, favorite sites on all things political. It's just one of my favorite sites, period. Um, and, of course, in the spirit of transparency, I do write for them on a regular basis, but I really do think the Hill does great work. Uh, here's the piece by John Solomon up on thehill.com. FBI agents' text messages spur congressional probe into possible news leaks. Huh. So be... be let, let me give you a little bit of this, and then we'll step back and do some analysis of it together, shall we? So you've got the following. Quote, Republican, Republican-led House and Senate committees are investigating whether leaders of the Russia counterintelligence investigation had contacts with the news media that resulted in improper leaks prompted in part by text messages among senior FBI officials mentioning specific reporters, news organizations, and articles. In one exchange, FBI counterintelligence agent Peter Strzok and bureau lawyer Lisa Page engage in a series of texts shortly before Election Day 2016, suggesting they knew in advance about a Wall Street Journal article and would need to feign stumbling onto the story so it could be shared with colleagues. Article is out, but hidden behind paywall, so can't read it, Page texted, texted struck on October 24th, 2016. 
Wall Street Journal, boy, that was fast, Strzok texted back. Should I, quote, find it and tell the team? Uh, And then it goes on. Strzok played a key role in the early Russia election meddling probe before he was removed last summer by special counsel Robert Mueller for exchanging anti-Trump text messages with Page. Uh, Okay, so The Hill reviewed nearly three dozen texts in which the two agents discussed articles, tried to track down information about a specific New York Times reporter, or opined about leaked information and stories that they fretted were super specific. Hmm. Isn't this all interesting? Isn't this fascinating? They were going to pretend that information that they found information so that it would seem like they didn't know anything about it beforehand. Now, this isn't clear cut. So I don't want to get ahead. Uh, and obviously, the quote ended there, right? You can tell I'm, I'm no longer reading from the piece by John Solomon at thehill.com. Funny side note, I once did a, uh, I was a, a very loquacious fellow in high school and did the speech and debate team uh, for a little while, not too long, because it would take up your weekends. And I was a young guy in New York City. And, you know, I would like to see, like to see some of my, uh, female counterparts on the weekends and uh, female peers and debate didn't allow for that. So I only did it for a little while. But I do remember once reading a quote from some political scientist because he would do that at the top of a, of a debate segment uh, or they didn't call it a segment. I don't remember Lincoln Douglas debate. I don't even know what we what the terminology is anymore. It's been like 20 years. Uh, and the one problem I had at the end, I actually, I think I lost that debate, which was which I will note was rare for me. No surprise. Uh, not even a humble brag, just a brag brag. But the person grading me or the judge, it wasn't grading me, but the judge said that the problem was your, your initial quote was too long. I was like, my initial quote was three lines. And they said, oh, well, we thought the first you know six minutes of your speech was quoted. I said, well, excuse me, but that was just extemporaneous buck. That was buck a la carte, just wilding. And now I need to get back into this story at the Hill that you actually care about. So this is what they're trying to say here. Back to this piece by John Solomon at the Hill. Um, And that is also to say that I will try to always tell you when I'm quoting versus when I'm just doing the show. Uh, Here's what is suggested here. We know that there were leaks, almost certainly from DOJ or FBI, to the press to damage the Trump administration. The most egregious and obvious, obviously illegal one had to do with the phone conversation between Ambassador Sergei Sergei Kizilyak. I think of Sergei Kizilyak and immediately I'm just like, where is the vodka? Um, But Sergei Kizilyak speaking to General Flynn, soon to be National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. Uh, that was a that was a leak of information that anybody with access to it would know. Oh, no, no, no. You do not talk to the press about that. It's unethical. It's illegal. Very, very illegal, too. Uh, so somebody with high level access who also thought that they were smart enough and protect and perhaps protected enough within the bureaucracy. Let that information out there. But also there were other leaks along the way of damaging, of information intended to damage President Trump. I would note that 
it, it took a while before we realized, hold on a second. The only reason that the only way they could have this is if they were doing surveillance that also picked up Trump and his associates. And now we've since found out that, yes, there was surveillance of or that surveillance, at least that involved or touched on some of Trump's associates. So. They were doing stuff that was clearly illegal, meaning the leaks, they were leaking information that's clearly illegal. And we have yet to find, you will note, a single, a single anti-Trump leaker. And I would note that if you were at the DOJ and high level enough, you would be among the very few people in government that would think that not only could you leak and you feel like you would know what you could leak and not get caught for doing, you also may have as a backstop the belief that the very, very senior folks that you're friends with at the DOJ who also hate Trump would make sure that your name you know, was never never raised as the possible leaker of classified information. So that's the the backdrop for this piece in The Hill. But as we look at this piece in The Hill, we see that there is at least some reason to believe that some FBI agents or FBI employees, right, one's a lawyer and one's an actual uh, a field agent, uh, might have known about a news st- about the information in a news story before it came out, which sure that happens, right? If you're working in the national security side of things, if you have a security clearance, this happens for anybody who's working, you know, you're going to see something in the press. You're like, Oh, so people that people know about that thing now, but why would they, as we see in this piece, why would struck and page remember struck is the insurance policy. If Trump gets elected guy, why would Strzok and Page try to hide how they, you know, that, that make sure that they came up with the information on their own? Why that consideration? Certainly one possible answer to that is that they knew the information was going to get out there because they're the ones who gave it to the press or they knew who did give it to the press. Maybe it wasn't Strzok or Page, but maybe they know who did do it, right? Now, this is not to say that that is what happened, but it is certainly a possible explanation. And given what we see from those text messages, uh, given what we see in this piece from thehill.com and hat tip John Solomon, it is a, it, there are questions that need answers. There are no obvious answers to why would FBI agents want to convince their peers that they just stumbled upon this inform they, they stumbled upon this in a news story. I'm sure, by the way, I didn't have time to do this because this this piece just went up uh, in the last couple of hours. But I would like to go and maybe do a LexisNexis search and see what were the big breaking news stories that coincided with this date of uh, the text messages that they exchanged, uh, October twenty fourth, twenty sixteen. Uh, I have some ideas, but I don't know. I don't remember everything. My my knowledge of breaking news stories about the election is not so encyclopedic that I can just like, oh, yeah, that was that story. I have to think about it for a little bit. I have to do some research on it. But we need answers. Uh, I would like to know why that is. And that the DOJ has been stonewalling for months now, the congressional investigation into all this, is an indicator that there's definitely something going on here. There's definitely something wrong. I would like to just 
share this with you because I think it's uh, useful for us as we continue to process information about how the DOJ, how the FBI has involved itself in both the Hillary campaign, of course, or the, the decision not to charge Hillary for the emails, and then the investigations into Donald Trump, which I guess we just call Russia collusions, the Russia collusion investigation. And that is this. I think it's, you could call it the, the Comey syndrome or the Comey effect. If you are a senior DOJ or FBI official, I could see it being very easy, not that it's right, not that it's okay, but I could see it being very easy for uh, those who are at the, the top ranks. Remember, we're not talking about the rank and file here. You know, FBI agents who are listening to the show across the country, you know, thank you for chasing down kidnappers and organized crime and, and drug cartels and everything else that you're doing. So appreciate that very much. You're doing a great job. And uh, we owe you a debt of gratitude. I'm talking about like 10 people at the top of the DOJ and FBI. That's where this discussion really focuses. That's what's at issue here. And if you were one of those people and you knew that somebody, maybe one of your peers, one of the top people in the DOJ had played politics here, didn't break the law necessarily. And we should always keep in mind, I've said this, we had Andy McCarthy on last week. I said, don't expect anybody from FBI or DOJ to get frog marched out of their office in handcuffs, no matter what we find out on this stuff. Because realistically, abuse of power, when you're talking about counterintelligence investigations and all this other stuff, falls within the discretion of bureaucrats. It's highly, it could be highly unethical. People might get fired, but being really bad at your job is not a criminal offense. right? So all they have to do is convince enough people that not a criminal, that they didn't break the law in any way with their decisions that they made about whether it's Hillary's emails or the Trump-Russia collusion. But if you were a top FBI lawyer, top DOJ lawyer, top personnel in the Department of Justice, and you knew that somebody was, it was going to come, it could come out that somebody had been a Hillary partisan in the trappings of a nonpartisan DOJ uh, role. Wouldn't it be so easy to justify to yourself? You know what? We don't we don't need the public to find out about that. We need to protect the reputation of our institutions. We need to prevent the FBI and the DOJ from being dragged through the mud here. Maybe we don't let it be known that someone with power and authority in the Department of Justice put their hand on the scale one way or another for Hillary and against Trump because of the damage it would do to the DOJ. You could almost hear them saying it, right? Think of someone like a James Comey. You could almost hear Comey making this very speech or thinking this to himself. There are others just like Comey at DOJ at FBI. We know this. And they may very well find some rationale or have found some rationale already to suppress the truth about what happened there. But with this piece in the Hill and with many other recent revelations, it is seeming increasingly likely that we're going to find out that there's something very rotten in the most terrifying place for it to exist in our government, which is at the Department of Justice, federal law enforcement. That, that's, you want to talk about losing faith in institutions. 
what does America feel like if we start to lose faith in the DOJ entirely? All right, we're going to roll into a break here in a second. 844-900-2825. Have any of you read the Wolf book, by the way, or any parts of it? Do you have any thoughts on it? Let me know. And also, uh, what do you got any thoughts about the Golden Globes last night? For those of you who watched it, I don't know if any of you watched it, but we'll talk about that and more coming up in the next hour. Google discriminates against conservative white men, according to a new lawsuit, class action lawsuit filed by James Damore. I actually had the opportunity to speak to Mr. Damore uh, some weeks ago on a uh, podcast, and it was an interesting conversation. He's a soft-spoken fellow, uh, and he is the one that authored that manifesto. I don't even know. To call it a manifesto is to make it seem like it was meant to be inflammatory or meant to send shockwaves through Google. All he really said in this was, look, Google's an ideological echo chamber. That was, I believe, a quote from the title. Google is an ideological echo chamber. Everybody thinks left. Everybody's a progressive. You have to be. If you're not, you will be punished. (laughs) All of a sudden, like... uh, Ambassador Kizilyak is like, you cannot be a conservative with Google or else you'll be punished. Um, but yeah, you, you have no choice. You are either going to risk your career and the respect of your peers at Google or you're going to be a liberal, progressive. You know, So progressive that you in some ways outdo even, I think, the mainstream media with your sense of what what society should look like. But Damore is going to be uh, a very, in- it's going to be very interesting to see how this lawsuit goes. The suit was filed earlier today in a Santa Clara Superior Court out in California. And it claims the following Damore and other class members were ostracized, belittled, and punished for their heterodox political views and for the added sin of their birth circumstances of being Caucasians and or males, according to the lawsuit. This is the essence of discrimination. Google formed opinions about and then treated plaintiffs not based on their individual merits, but rather on their membership in groups with assumed characteristics. End quote. Ooh, this could get very interesting. This is showing you that not everyone who works at these progressive uh, tech giants is willing to just lie down and take it. You know, just just allow this progressive insanity to be completely unchallenged. And it also notes that we have a, a strange and many would be like, what? But it's true. There's a strange phenomenon in this country right now of denigrating publicly denigrating white men has become uh, kind of a hip thing to do, uh, including, for example, a BuzzFeed. There was a piece got a lot of attention. BuzzFeed, which. Come for the cat video, stay for the serious political analysis, uh, which I don't think people do and, and they should, and certainly shouldn't. Uh, but BuzzFeed wrote some piece about 30 or something things that white people ruined in 2017. You know, apologizing for whiteness has become a for by white people has become a form of virtue signaling on the left. And there's also a, a sense that it's open season on Uh, condemning and belittling and mocking white males in progressive institutions, 
right? You, you either have to kind of bend the knee and, and beg for forgiveness and be super, super progressive, or you will be mocked, ridiculed, and in James Damore's case, fired. So look, California, I'm sure the courts are full of, are packed with crazies, you know, a lot of, a lot of Obama appointees on the courts out in California. But at least Damore of Google is fighting back, and he's saying, you know what? If you're going to be an ideological echo chamber, we're going to force you to just have to state that publicly. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here with me, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, so the, the other Golden Globes last night, I just, I look, I, I didn't watch the Golden Globes. I don't care really about the Golden Globes, but you got a few things. One, Oprah is now rumored to be considering a 2020 uh, election run. I would note that she doesn't need the fame. She doesn't need the money, right? I mean, she's not that you make money running for. Well, actually, you can make a lot of money running for president afterwards. But uh, if she ran, I have to say, I think she'd be a formidable candidate. I think that uh, we have a lot of indicators that somebody with that level of public approval, um, uh, that level of public adoration, really, as well as an enormous bank book to uh, fund whatever she wants to do, it would be formidable. It would be a formidable campaign. Um, uh, would it be more formidable than The Rock, somebody else who has been rumored from the celebrity world to run for president? I don't know. We do have a current president who was a TV celebrity by his, well, not just by his own admission, just that's what was true. That was reality. Uh, so we have to at least think that there's the possibility of Oprah running in 2020. And uh, there's that issue. Then there's also the what she had to say last night at the Golden Globes about the press specifically. Because we all know that the press is under siege these days. But we also know that it is the insatiable dedication to uncovering the absolute truth that keeps us from turning a blind eye to corruption and to injustice. To, to tyrants and victims and secrets and lies. I want to say that I value the press more than ever before as we try to navigate these complicated times, which brings me to this. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. So she said the press is under siege these days. And I'm sure that this is a belief that is shared by 90, 99% of Hollywood or 95. Uh, all of Hollywood that pays attention enough to have an opinion on the press probably agrees with this notion that the press is under siege. But let's just think about this for a moment, shall we? So the president says that, you know, Jake Tapper is fake news or that CNN is fake news, that there's this willingness to call out the news that we've all seen from the president going back for quite a while now. How is that under siege? Is it the job of the president of the United States to coddle the egos of all these different journalists? Is it now an obligation for a Republican president who knows that the media is wildly hostile toward him. Is it his job to pretend like they're not? Why is he allowed to say this? I remember 
yeah, Obama had the adoration of the media and was, as a result, able to get away with a lot of just flatly unconstitutional and uh, very troubling abuses of power because the mo- most of the press, the vast majority of the press were like, oh, it's Obama, it's fine. But when it came to Fox News with President Obama, he had no trouble, he had no trouble, uh, you know, throwing Fox News, so to speak, under the bus. No, no problem with taking the the tone that Fox News was unfair and, uh, and and he would slam talk radio too. The only reason you didn't hear more of that from Obama was that, you know, 90% of the media was in his, was in his pocket. 90% of the media thought everything Obama did was brilliant, that he was perfect and he was the greatest president in the history of the country. Well, in that case, yeah, you're not going to push back a lot, but I, I've just never understood this or, or I'm unwilling to accept. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I'm unwilling to accept this notion that Trump is way out of line for saying that the media is against him when they are for calling out fake news, which has happened and continues to happen at his expense. And I would argue at the expense of the country. And if we're going to talk about truth, how about the truth that we've known for a long time, but now we don't sugarcoat it. Now we don't dance around it. The truth that the media is an extension of the Democrat Party. The truth that the media is effectively, for all intents and purposes, a Democrat PAC, a political action committee. It's one thing to say they're biased, they're mostly liberal, you know, it affects their... It's nothing to just say they are in all-out advocacy mode. They are not pushing for truth, they're not pushing for enlightenment, they are pushing for a result. And the result is power in the hands of statist progressives power in the hands of well more power back into their hands too what makes the press so anti-trump well we could do a whole show just on filling in the blank there but one of the things that makes the the press most anti-trump of all is that he is a challenge to their power to their ability to influence public opinion and public perception because if they aren't able to get away with this, oh, no, we're we're just bringing you the facts thing. They're held to a different standard of accountability. If we are aware of the biases and aware of the efforts that they are making to tr- to try and influence us to bring about certain. End results. It makes their jobs. They're propagandizing harder to pull off. But it's not to say that they're under siege, and I think it's really uh unfair and dishonest for Oprah to pretend that somehow that's what's happening here. I mean, look, maybe she believes it. Fine. I mean, that, that's her belief. I just think she's really wrong. I think she's wrong. And it goes without saying that so much of what we saw last night, I, I, there was one thing, there was a, a shirt that I saw and it really made me kind of bummed because I like the show Friday night lights, even though, for reasons that are still inexplicable to me, they have a lot of, you know, 28 year old Abercrombie models playing like 15 and 14 year olds in high school. Like, can we just get teen, you know, teenage actors to play teenagers? What? I'm always amazed by this. You know, I grew up watching this show and a lot of you're like, Buck, come on. True story. 
I will, well, Saved by the Bell, actually, they were pretty much the right age for what the roles they were playing. But I grew up watching, like, uh, Beverly Hills 90210. I'm pretty sure there was a 34-year-old who was playing a high school kid. That would be like me playing a high school kid. And some of you may think that, you know, I could pull that off because I look young. But the point is, I never understand why they, they make that decision. I think it's kind of weird. But I like the show Friday Night Lights. And... Connie Britton, who's also in Nashville, which many of you, I've never seen that show. Many of you really like it. Uh, I, have a, I have a fondness for her work. I don't, know the, I don't know the woman. She could be wonderful. She could be terrible. I have no idea. I don't know her personally at all. Never met her. But I know that she wore a, a T-shirt to the Golden Globes that said, Poverty is sexist. Now, among the slogans that one could put out there, that would seem to me to be as uh, brainless and worthless as anything that you could reasonably come up with. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. It's, it's not enough to say I don't know what it means, because I think it's, it's meaningless. I don't even know what she's trying to say. Right? It, it's as though I'm, tr- I'm interpreting someone's blather. Right? I'm, interpre- I'm interpreting politi- the political equivalent of, of gibberish. And I can't even say, well, what they said, what Connie Britton wrote here or what doesn't make sense. But here's what they're going for. I, I don't even know what this means. And it was a, apparently a T-shirt that more than or a, I don't know if it was a T-shirt or a, a onesie or a bodice or I don't whatever it was. Right. But it was worn by people at the Golden Globes. This is now the, the, the clearest sign that you can see of the virtue signaling of this of this Me Too moment that these actors or actors, actors uh, and actresses were engaged in. Although I think actor now is used for both. We don't say actress anymore. We say actor. Uh, I'll have to ask one of my actor friends about this. That when you have slogans that literally make no sense, but people are running with it because it, it doesn't really matter, then you know. Right? That's how I knew that Occupy Wall Street was ultimately just destined for the trash heap of history. It was just nonsense. All these different slogans. What does it even mean? What does Occupy Wall Street even mean? That doesn't really mean anything. It's straight out of the Alinsky playbook, right? Just get people excited about an emotion. What's the result you're pushing for? What are you? What, are, what concept are you trying to raise awareness about? I don't really know. Something. We're doing something. But yeah, poverty is sexist. I guess... I'm sure somebody could go, oh, Buck, if you look at poverty statistics, it disproportionately affects women or something. But poverty is a state and sexist is a point. I'm not you know what? It's not (laughs) I'm actually going to stop myself. It's not even worth analyzing beyond that. It's just the the dumb is the dumb is strong out in L.A. That is for sure. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Big immigration showdown in Congress is looming. Are we going to get a wall? Are we going to get DACA? Or rather, are they going to come up with a permanent solution to DACA one way or the other? We are going to dive into all that together, my friends, and much more. So stay right there. There's one viewer that you care about right now, and you're being obsequious. You're being a factotum in order to please him, okay? And I think, you know, I've you know I, I think I've about? wasted enough of my you viewers' know who time. I, you know who Thank I you, care Stephen. About? As Republicans, hey, lawmakers Jake, call you know for Attorney General about? Jeff Sessions to resign. In a major reversal, Democrats are now... And that was just a, just a taste of that exchange between Jake Tapper and Stephen Miller, senior policy aide to Trump. 
And if you haven't seen the, the whole thing, I would recommend you go back and and you you watch it um, because, well, one, the president tweeted out that you know fake fake Tapper got uh, metaphorically body slammed in it, but you had some people who were just outraged that uh, Stephen Miller would go toe to toe with Tapper in that way, and they said he was rude and. And you had others who, and I'm on this side of it, say, you know what? I, I understand why Miller took that approach. I think he did a great job. Here's the game they play at CNN. And I know because I used to sit there as a conservative sometimes. The The problem I had at CNN initially was, well, not initially, but the problem that developed was at first I was there mostly in a, in a counterterrorism analyst capacity, which... I do as well as anybody that they put on air, and they know that, or at least some of them did, so they would put me on sometimes to talk about that. I actually have more experience in counterterrorism than a lot of the people they put on air to talk about it. Because uh, believe it or not, being a, you know, I don't know, being a CNN analyst, you don't necessarily have to go through the most vigorous uh, vetting process. But anyway... The way it went, and later on, I started to do more stuff that was political analysis, and so then I got I got caught up in the old CNN ambush, and that's what they tried to. That's what Tapper wanted to do to Miller, which was to say, he's going to ask him questions that no matter what the answer is from uh, from Stephen Miller, it is meant to be damaging to the president. It's just a long series of when did you stop beating your wife, so to speak. He didn't actually ask him that, but you know that old. Uh, that old tactic, right? Someone says to you, when do you stop beating your wife, sir? And you've never laid a hand on your wife. Or, you know, when do you stop beating your, your husband? Doesn't matter. Right? But you answer, well, I, I, I never I never did. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad we had to establish that you're not a spouse abuser, right? That's that's the one of the oldest tricks in the book, so to speak. And what, they were, what he was going to do to Trump there, what Tapper's, uh, not Trump, uh, Miller, his approach was to say, so, you know, the, the, the president, is he, you know, is he, is he mentally fit? What do you think about the president? So is the president crazy? The answer to is the president crazy, whether you're Stephen Miller or anybody else, is how dare you ask that question? Right. Or the answer to it is this is a joke. Let's talk about what matters. There's no way to actually give an answer to that question that Jake Tapper wants that isn't playing into their hands. It isn't playing into the game. And, you know, I, I think, you know, Miller's not the most uh, warm and fuzzy fellow. I think that's pretty clear. But he he just wanted to get into it with Tapper. He wasn't going to sit there and, you know, the Tapper's not asking him policy questions. He said he had a whole list of them, but he wasn't. He wanted to just get into it. Let's pick salacious stuff from the Wolf book. And have a senior White House advisor answer it. Just like they could have picked salacious stuff from the dossier and then had, oh, what do you think about this completely unproven nonsense hoax allegation, but disgusting nonetheless about the president of the United States? We see this and we know. We see this and we understand. It's clear what they are trying to do. And and that it was on the one of the Sunday shows that I think Jake Tapper State of the Union. So if you wanted to see it, it should be pretty easy to find. But you get the idea, right? He just he went after Miller. Tapper went after Miller. Miller's like, I'm not having it. Let's go. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. 
<laughs> I would note that you know, for example, uh, there there were some th- there were some shows that at CNN they'd only reach out to me, and I'm like, oh, here we go. They'd only reach out to me if there was a really juicy Trump gaffe, you know, that they would and they would say, well, you know, will you defend this thing that Trump said? And and even if I would be able to defend it, it was either going to be you know, oh, how could you how could you defend Trump? You know, are you are you a racist too? How could you defend Trump? Are you a a sexual abuser too? And there's no way to win that argument. And that's the way CNN sets stuff up. It's just it is fake news. It's dishonest. You have no chance over there as a conservative uh, analyst or uh, guest on the show if you're going to try to make a point that they disagree with. It is for the benefit and amusement of their audience. It is to placate their audience's prejudices that they set up these segments. That's how they set up the ambushes. That's why if you do too well, you don't get asked back. And by too well, I mean you make the conservative case in a way that's compelling and thoughtful. Then then they won't have you back for a while. You know, they want to put somebody on there as like, oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah, whatever you say, Jake Tapper, you're, you're brilliant. You're the best. I'm sorry. You're right. Donald Trump is such a racist and he's such a he's such a bad guy. I just hate Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, that, that, that conservative's great. Let's have him back. You know, put him on the book. Let's do it. Bring him on next week. Well, I'm so glad you had me back. I mean, you know, just Jake Tapper. I mean, thanks, you know. Donald Trump, he's like, you know, I'm a Republican. I'm here to just tell you how terrible Donald Trump is. Hey, there's job security in that. I see a whole line of them going on MSNBC now, too. You know, so you're you're a true conservative. You've got real conservative credentials. Just tell us how bad Donald Trump is. And and we'll just be quiet for a minute while you tell us how terrible Donald Trump is. Uh, you know, and then people will do it. And then, and then call themselves conservatives afterwards. I sit around, I'm like, what? You know, you don't have to like Trump if you're conservative. I get that. I, I can even I can even understand a lot of the misgivings that many conservatives still have about Trump, despite the record. Right? I understand. That's just stylistically. But if you're going to do the enemy's work for them, I don't know what to tell you. You know, if you're going to hold hands with the progressive left as they try to destroy this presidency and, and harm the American people and stuff, I don't know what to say. <laughs> we see a lot of this. There's a lot of it going on still. Man, I didn't even get into immigration stuff, and I want to. So we will get to that in a second. Let up some lines, my friends. Love to hear from you. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. And also now is a perfect time for me to mention. Shields High Podcast is live. It is up. You can follow it on iHeartRadio or subscribe on iTunes and uh, share it around. It's a history podcast. It's only about uh, 25 minutes. So check it out. We'll be right back. Just one note that I left out before. Uh, this is what Wolf, this guy who wrote Fire and Fury, this is what what he says about how Trump described Bannon. Quote, guy looks homeless. Take a shower, Steve. You've worn those pants for six days. He says he's made money. I don't believe it. <laughs> I mean, could I see Trump maybe saying that about Steve Bannon? Yeah. Yeah, what did he call? He called him Stinky Steve or something, right? Or what was it? I, I forget. Sloppy, Sloppy Steve. Sorry, not Stinky Steve. Pardon me, Sloppy Steve. Sloppy Steve. Uh, sloppy Steve. Oh, Sloppy Steve. Um, which is a which is a fair enough uh, description, I, I suppose. The, the double shirt thing. I don't know. That was a for a while when I was in college, which. Seems like the Ice Age now, a long time ago. Uh, for a while when I was in college, 
people would wear, men and women, would wear two polo shirts and pop the collars on both of them. I don't know if that's if Bannon, that's where he gets his personal style from New England uh, liberal arts colleges. Maybe they did in the South, too, at universities. I don't know. But, yeah, that's what he said about him. So uh, Sloppy Steve, take, he, he says he's made money. I don't believe it. Oh, gosh, Trump. Oh, my. Michael in North Carolina. What's going on, Michael? Do we have Michael going once, going twice? Um, I guess we don't have Michael. So I will get into something else, right? Oh, we do have him. Hey, there we go. Hey, Michael, what's going on? Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, what's up? Hey, nothing much, man. Uh, I remember when I first saw you, it was on uh, Greg Gutfeld, uh, Red Eye. Oh, wow. That was a while ago now. I love that show, by the way. I I miss that show, although Greg's doing very well over at Fox with his Saturday show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, what I called, um, I dusted off my uh, Sid Meier civilization, uh, Beyond the Sword, and, uh, oh, I love it. I'm fighting uh, the Ottomans right now with uh, Charlemagne. <laughs> Charlemagne, <laughs> well, have you downloaded the Shield Tie podcast? Because I'm talking about Charlemagne's granddad, Charles Martel. D- dude, yeah, yeah, Charles Martel. Uh, see, I, I went to uh, college for uh, anthropology and archaeology and all this other stuff, and uh, but history was always my thing. I used to gather my friends around and tell them, like, Charles Martel, the hammer. I used to tell them these stories, and they, they were just sitting there with their mouths open. Anyway, <laughs> the reason I'm, uh, one of the reasons I'm calling, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, man crushing a little bit. Um, one of the reasons I'm calling is uh, there's a new game out. It's about $10. It's not all that. It's called Orwell on Origin, and... Uh, uh, you got to play it. It's um, it's it's pretty good. Or is it is it a similar setup to Civilization, or what's what's the? No, no. Um, basically, um, I, I don't know. They they passed something called the safety bill. I mean, it's totally liberal, like run, but it's fun. Um, you get to stalk people. Um, you're basically the um, NSA. Oh, <laughs> you're basically the NSA. Oh, okay. And uh, you go through all their um, all their like. Twitters and you go all through all their Facebooks and everything, and you um, you can frame them and, and do all this. You, you got to check it out. I don't want to ruin it. Your for you. your favorite civilization to play as in Sid Meier's Civilization is what? Beyond the Sword, oh. hands down. No, I, I mean which, but like, are, do you like to play as Gandhi? I, I like to play as Montezuma oh, from oh, the oh. Aztecs. My, oh come on! Oh, well, see, I'm Native American, long hair all the way down to my back. Um, so you know, I want to play as a sitting bull, but um, I think Charlemagne and uh, George Washington. All right, rock and roll. Thank you very much, Michael. Go, Shield sign. Great. Later on, you get the better technology. All right, all right, man. I'll Thank you, dude. You, hey, download that podcast. You'll like it. It's got good stuff on it. So, uh, one more thing from the. Uh, I know we're going to talk immigration. I'm going to get there in a second. I always got a lot to say on immigration. Topic that fascinates me. Uh, but one thing I did not get to yet today, and that is that there are reports out there that Trump may be, may be talking directly to Mueller as part of this Russia collusion probe. And I just certainly hope that there is enough of an understanding in the White House of what's really at work here. And I don't mean, I think Trump knows, but I worry that some of his advisors may say, oh, no, you know, talk his lawyers. I hope he's got good lawyers. He's got plenty of money, so I'm assuming he's got good lawyers. He should have very good lawyers on this issue because they're not going to get anybody on any Russia collusion nonsense. I think we all know that. But they might get somebody else. They've already gotten a couple on the process crimes that 
a skilled investigator who is looking for uh, looking to take people out, looking to rack up a prosecutorial body count, so to speak. Uh, that's that's already happened and it could happen more. And I don't even want to know what the political atmosphere is like in this country. If let's just say Trump spoke to Mueller and then and I don't even know how this would go. And they're probably just going to do uh, a written statement from Trump on all this. Although that has to be accurate, too. I would, right. So uh, but can you imagine the I, I, it's hard to even think of how we would describe it. But imagine the circumstance of. This Mueller probe, which is a sham, okay, it's it's the whole thing is just turned into an outright sham. I mean, I've known it from the beginning. I will note that I have been consistent. I said the special counsel, those of you who've been listening to me at least for the last 12 months know this. This is a terrible idea. They never should have allowed it to happen. If there was a problem, DOJ could have figured it out. A special counsel was an invitation to partisan nonsense, and that's what we've got here, a partisan witch hunt. But- if they had the president under under well not under oath you're just speaking to the FBI or in this, in this case speaking to a federal law enforcement officer and let's say Trump in in just his trumpian way exaggerate something or misremember something i mean is Mueller really going to bring line to the FBI charges against the president of the United States is he really going to do that i i mean people say oh what about bill clinton and and lying under oath yeah Remember what happened there? No charges. Maybe that's worth remembering now, too. That's right. Flatly lied under oath. No charges. What if Mueller says, hey, you know what? We are going to we are going to push for charges against Trump for lying. We, we would have a presidential precedent already of lying under oath with no consequences in recent memory. Bill Clinton. And then we would have a sham investigation going on about no crime that anybody can actually even identify yet. And they're going to allow the pre- or they're going to try to ensnare the president. And I just. You know, you, you got to theorize about it a little bit. You got to war game it out because things have gotten so crazy that I can't sit here and tell you for certain that that's not a future that we may be facing. I think it's unlikely. I think Trump, one, won't sit down with Mueller uh, in that way. And uh, two. Who knows if they're even going to force a statement from him at all. But, you know, that also is a reminder to all of us who say, oh, don't, you know, just don't lie. Interrogators have, you know, all the powers in their hands and you are asking for problems. If you really think that you can sit there and just be asked endless questions by people who already know the answers or at least think they know the answers, you almost all the questions are going to ask you. Uh, and you're not going to get tripped up and, and run into some some legal jeopardy. I mean, what do people think Papadopoulos lied about? Not some, you know, he wasn't involved in some big international conspiracy. He probably lied about nothing when he talked to somebody about something or other. Now people are saying, oh, well, he might go to prison. It's just crazy. Uh, but that would imagine the constitutional crisis that we may face if um, if. Uh, um, we have the president possibly facing a charge from the Mueller investigation. It it would be pandemonium. It would be dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. That's what would happen. Uh, all right. Uh, immigration next, because today the the Trump administration 
They're saying withdrew protection for 200,000 Salvadoran immigrants, immigrants from El, the, the small Central American country of El Salvador. Uh, well, the way that we talk about this, the words that we use, the way the media frames this discussion matters a lot to where it is likely to go, meaning what we're likely to take from all this. So we'll talk about that. Also, the debt ceiling, the wall, big, big, big policy fight ahead, I think, on immigration. And this will be a real test of Trump. Will he will he win? Will we get tired of his winning? We'll take that up right after this break. So a big decision from the Department of Homeland Security, big decision by the executive branch of the federal government today. The Trump administration has ended the temporary protected status of approximately 200,000 people from El Salvador, uh, most a, a strong majority of whom, I believe, are in the country illegally. Uh, but here, here's just a bit of the background on this before we get into the why does this matter, why should we be focused on it and all the rest of it. Uh, temporary protected status was actually signed into law by President George H.W. Bush back in 1990, and what it says is that from certain countries that are afflicted by uh, war or natural disaster, I think particularly natural disaster they focused on. So Haiti is another country that has been covered by a temporary protected status. If you are from that country and you are in this country, legally or illegally, you can stay while the temporary protected status is in effect. So you, and you can work legally. You are, you are allowed to be here. But the way the law is set up, it has to be renewed. And when it's not renewed, the people who are here under that status by law must return home. And so the Trump administration has said, OK, uh, there were a couple of really bad or devastating earthquakes back in 2001. And previous administrations allowed an influx of 200,000 uh, El Salvadoran or Salvadorans. To come into the country and stay. This shouldn't be that complicated, a legal concept at least, because it is temporary protected status, right? It, it, in the very name, it is not supposed to be an open invitation to anyone from a country to come and stay here forever illegally, right? And, and we, we can all be very clear about this, right? I mean, it's whether you can get here legally or illegally, if the desire is to stay here permanently, that would be skipping to the front of the immigration line of the immigration process. And that's not what this is supposed to do. Once again, with immigration, we see this. The American people are a big hearted and generous people. And we like to do what we can or our government on our behalf does some things that are just humanitarian in nature. It's not really for the benefit of this country in a bottom line day to day sense, but it's, you know, we, we try to be a, you know, a beacon of light and freedom and all the rest of it and and safety for people and shelter from the storm and all that. And we're willing to say, OK, you know, you can come here for a period of time because your country is in really rough shape right now. But the whole purpose of this status of this law is that eventually, you know, you're supposed to go back. 
Otherwise, they wouldn't call it temporary protected status. They would call it permanent protected status. Right? This, this is a pretty clear thing. But you can imagine the media is furious about it. Front page of uh, New York Times, a bunch of other places, too. Furious about it because they think it's so un-American. And, and you will, you can guess already what they're doing, how they're covering this. They're showing all, the most... Uh, sympathetic families they possibly can. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to them now? And I would just note that, you know, this this is what you're going to see from the mainstream media on every issue of immigration going forward. It's just always, you know, people crying because they're, they're you know, they're, they're separating families and valedictorians who aren't being allowed to give their graduation speech or whatever. I mean, that's that's all that immigration uh, turns into for them. And if that's all that were at stake, you might say to yourself, "Okay, well, I I guess maybe we should just allow everybody to be here. But they won't say that. Right. The Democrats won't say that. They'll just say, oh, well, you can't send these people away. But if we're going to be a country of laws at some point, don't we have to actually enforce those laws? If this is so evil a thing to do, as many Democrats are saying now, doesn't Congress then have an obligation to change the law, make make it permanent protected status, see what your constituents, see what uh, various districts and states think of congressmen and senators who go along with that, who change the law so that it would be permanent. This is a harbinger of things to come. This is showing us what the direction of this immigration debate is going to be. It will be emotionalism on one side. And a desire for a restoration of sovereignty on the other, the establishment of borders, uh, decisions made to enforce the laws. It is going to get very nasty. You know why? For Democrats, it's not so much a question of what's in the best interests of the country. It's just much more about the power that they derive from legalizing constituencies that they know will overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. Um, And they're, I think, in for something of a surprise with the Trump administration on this, because there is no way there is no way that Donald Trump can fail to build or rather that Donald Trump can look his base in the eye and say, sorry, we didn't build a wall. Sorry, we didn't pass any meaningful immigration reform, even though we have a majority in Congress. And, And sorry that we didn't really follow through on all those immigration promises, but, you know, it's all going to be fine. They're going to negotiate over this uh, debt ceiling, I think, because here's the little secret. The American people actually don't want open borders. The American people would, and this is, how did Trump win? Right? What was the issue that rocketed him to the front of, I think it was 17 GOP candidates at one point? What was it? It was immigration. By far. I don't think anyone even really doubts it. Yeah, he talked about trade and there were other things too, but immigration was what really changed the game. And looking at the way forward, I would hope that enough of the GOP has realized that that secure borders, sovereignty, and an immigration system that benefits the people already here first and foremost is a winning series of issues for them, that they can win on immigration. Make Democrats run the Pelosi-Schumer platform of, you know, everybody gets to come, everybody gets to stay, and by the way, you get to pay their welfare benefits. 
because they're not going to be checking to see if people can compete and add to the economy right away. It's just based on chain migration, humanitarian concerns, temporary protected status. Do you think that it is more or less likely that people who come into the country from a uh, disaster scenario back home are going to need help from the government? Uh, you know, we, we can all make some pretty obvious, draw some pretty obvious conclusions here. But what's going to happen with DACA? That's at the top of the list, isn't it? That's the big bargaining chip. That's where we're going to see what the truth is of the GOP and Trump administration's convictions on immigration really are. So we are going to get into a bit of the DACA debt ceiling fight that is coming up. Assuming they don't kick the can down the road, which, you know, there's always that possibility. They could just say, you know what, we're just going to do infrastructure. And by the way, next hour, we've got the uh, deputy press secretary of the White House calling us to talk about the agenda that we're discussing right now. And also Selena Zito on Trump and rural America. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everyone. I am about to talk to you a bit more about immigration and the the fights that are, I think, going to be happening pretty soon between the various factions in Congress on this issue. Um, But I wanted to note that uh, in in the break I saw this. Uh, Sure enough, CNN, which is something you got to watch to fully appreciate how how far off the rails it's gone. Uh, But CNN is running a banner that says, some, what was it exactly? It was Trump uh, won't receive psych exam during physical. So th- this is just another way of, of playing the CNN game, right? The suggestion here is quite clear, isn't it? That Trump needs a psych exam, right? That the president of the United States, the commander in chief, needs a psych exam. You know, when you look back into the history of how the media has treated various Republican presidents, you see that... You know, maybe we should take some solace from the fact that this isn't really all that new. It was a a constant refrain on the left that, uh, you know, Reagan was senile, was crazy. Reagan had dementia. They were saying that for years. And now here we are again. The same party that. uh, The same party that is holding up Bernie Sanders as their their next great hope. Although I think they're actually going to, it's going to be, well, I mean, Oprah did say she, or people say Oprah may run, so there's that. But Kamala Harris, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, who strikes me as just entirely unremarkable in every every way that one could observe a politician. Uh, I I don't know what is inspiring, exciting, or interesting about Kirsten uh, Gillibrand. But nonetheless... Yeah, Trump needs a psych exam. That tends to be the uh, that tends to be the refrain you hear on the left now. And if he doesn't get one, they're going to say, "Oh, well, he's got the nuclear calls." Oh my gosh, they've lost all credibility. I, I I don't know what they really think happens the next time around. We have the internet now. We're going to remember all this, and if we don't, we can always go back and and Google it, unless Google goes full on hard left and starts you know scrubbing stuff, which they may do. And I would note they have they. Legally can do that. We are way too trusting of these massive uh, online entities, social media platforms. Oh, oh no, they, they don't have an agenda. They don't. Yeah, they do. They do. 
time to really face up to that reality. Um, but sure enough, yeah, they're saying Trump's not going to get a, psych, a psych eval. Ah, that is just it, 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 at some point. I hope it's too much. All right. So this is what's going on. You got congressional uh, leaders are trying to avoid this government shutdown. January 19 government shutdown deadline. A couple of ways that this could go. Uh, and I would just say from the from the outset, there is the very real possibility that they'll just be like, you know what? We're in Congress. Why strain ourselves? You know, why why go that extra mile? Why not just decide that we will? Um, why not just decide that we will wait on this issue? That we will push it, kick the can down the road, push it down. I wish I could come up with a better phrase and kick the can down the road. People use that one so much, but it, it gets the general idea out there. Um, they have the midterms looming, and as you know, which is crazy, isn't it? Here we're, It's January 2018. Oh my gosh, the midterms in November. That's all you're going to be hearing from a lot of politicos very soon here. But the way this is going to work out, if they decide to do something, and I don't know if they're going to or not, it's going to be this. Deferred action for childhood arrivals is the single most uh, effective emotional appeal on immigration the Democrats have. And and they know that, which is why that's all we really hear about from them. Do they say, oh, you know, we should just allow 11 million million illegals to stay because, you know, they well, some of them say that, too. But generally, they focus on DACA these days because of the understandable uh, sympathy that people have for anyone who was, in fact, brought here as a youth that did not have any say in that decision. I've talked before on the show and I'll continue to about how there are a lot of people that, you know, did they really come here as a youth? Did they come here when they were, you know, 17 or 18? I mean, what's the what's the truth of all the claims? But putting that aside for a moment, DACA is where Democrats, that's the the ground that Democrats want to fight over on immigration. Republicans need to seize this moment and say, okay, look, if you want something on DACA. You have to give us tangible. I mean that literally because we're talking about a wall in one case, real stuff that will prevent further waves of illegal immigration into the country. And we will be done here. We will be done with this. There will not be, oh, I'm just going to come to America however I get there and stay because, you know, the shadows or, you know, doing the jobs Americans won't do or whatever it may be. I would note that even uh, I think the Center for Immigration Studies come out recently and said you know, our friend Mark Krikorian is the uh, I think he's the executive director there. They said, look, with DACA, you, you might you might have to you might have to find some compromise with the Democrats on this, but it can only be in exchange for a a clear uh, not just promise but funding of and legislation to build the wall. E-Verify, which is workplace enforcement, E-Verify allows employers or forces, mandates employers to figure out whether or not a person is in the country legally. And other enhanced border security measures that we don't need to get into all the details of now, but those are very important ones. You got to have interior enforcement. You got a half a million visa overstays a year in this country. A lot of them are planning to stay here forever. Those are people who came through ports, who flew here who were initially allowed to be here, but they just never went home. And then you also have the issue of continued illegal crossings at the southern border. 
So this is where Republicans have to actually show some backbone and show that they are willing to deal and get something. It cannot be the problem with the uh, what was it, the, the gang of eight bill before with Marco Rubio and other Republicans who are trying to find some sweeping, comprehensive immigration reform deal is that we knew we'd get the amnesty and that's all that we knew. But everything else was going to be contingent. And when you're talking contingent with Democrats, you're talking about something that's never going to happen. There was never going to be a moment in the future when you'd be able to hold Democrats to account for refusing to refusing to enforce the provisions of a deal on immigration that were security first. Never mind the whole, oh, they're going to pay back taxes and learn English and do all these things. Yeah. Or what? You're going to you're going to deport people then after you've had a mass amnesty. Sorry. You know, everyone else has been amnesty, but your English isn't you know, you're, you're a, a three out of five on the English scale. We need you to be a four. You're, you, now we're going to deport you, please. It was never going to happen that way. And, and Democrats knew that, too. That's why the amnesty was front loaded and everything else was just going to get lost in the shuffle. That's I would know. That's what happened with Reagan. A lot of conservatives don't like it if I ever criticize anything Reagan did. But Reagan admitted that he got swindled in that deal. He had three million people amnestied, give or take. And there are, the enforcement measures never happened. And the so-called uh, pathway was a conveyor belt, right? If you were on the pathway, you stayed. It didn't matter what you did. You paid the taxes. You didn't pay them. You learned English. That's why a wall is not just a symbol. A wall is an enduring manifestation of securing the border. It, it, it is there. It will stay after the Trump administration is long gone. And once you have it and it works, I would note, and immigration, illegal immigration across the border drops precipitously, which is why Democrats are so dead set against it. Then it'll be impossible to get rid of because we we'll realize that it works. So that's what I think is coming up here. I really hope that uh, Trump and the members of Congress, uh, I, I really hope that they do the right thing here and they stand their ground and they get those concessions if they're going to do anything on DACA. Or they may just punt. They can't cave. I'm not. That's not okay. Maybe they'll punt, and that wouldn't surprise me, which means that at some point we'll also here have to talk about the debt and how it is out of control. But for right now, we got the uh, White House Deputy Press Secretary calling in in just a few minutes, talk to us about the Trump agenda as per the White House's discussion of it, and then Selena Zito joining about rural America and Trumpism. Stay with me. So, team, it is early in 2018, but already people are looking at the midterms and starting to get a sense of where all this is going. But it's going to deter it's going to depend a lot on the Trump agenda. What can Congress get through? What can the president sign and what will that do to the political landscape in this country? We have Raj Shaw with us now. He is President Trump's principal deputy press secretary going to give us the White House perspective on this. Raj, thank you so much for calling in. Buck, thanks so much for having me on. So uh, this past weekend, you had Republican leaders getting together with President Trump at Camp David. Can you give us a sense of uh, what the what the conversations were like or what what's the framework they're putting in place in terms of the agenda? 
Well, the uh, event this weekend and, and really the weekend at Camp David um, was about kind of getting the leadership and the president on the same page, um, talking about uh, the agenda items we have for the year ahead, and also talking a little bit about the successes we had in the year past. You know, we think one of the most important things we can do in the first few weeks and months of 2018 is talk about the successes of 2017, where you had, you know, a, uh, a tax reform bill, a tax cut bill that reformed taxes for the first time in 30 30 years and gave a middle class a tax cut, cut business taxes. Uh, we expanded um, we expanded the child care tax credit in that bill. Um, we had great success with uh, judges and confirming um, a record number of circuit court judges and the Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. Uh, we cut uh, regulations tremendously across the board and actually reduced regulations. More than 20 regulations were removed for every new one put in place. Uh, I could go on and on, but talking about the last year's record and talking it up helps get us political capital to sell our agenda going ahead. And we want to continue the economic momentum. So the issues they talked about were issues like infrastructure uh, redevelopment to uh, rebuild our roads, our bridges. Um, we're talking about a trillion dollar uh, combination of federal, uh, state, local, and private investment. We're also talking about issues like uh, welfare reform in which we wanna add uh, some version of um, testing and work requirements to uh, welfare recipients and allow states to have more authority. Uh, we're also looking at uh, issues like healthcare. Um, you know, part of the tax bill was to repeal what we call the individual mandate, which is essentially a tax on individuals who um, are who are uh, refu uh, or rather who can't afford insurance. Um, you know, we think that's uh, unfair, and we're happy to see it go. But there's a lot more of Obamacare we really want to tackle. So these are just some of the issues that they talked about. They talked about a lot more. I can I can uh, go on and on, but uh, it was. Can, a can great you give me some where, some yeah. sense specifically, uh, Raj, about? The government shutdown that's looming in January 19th, I, I assume there'll be some kind of a deal. But in part of that deal making process, there are expectations that Congress is going to have to come up with something on deferred action for childhood arrivals, as well as whatever else the White House and the Republicans insist on on the immigration front. What's the what's the overall position of the White House going into those negotiations mm -hmm. with the debt ceiling as it uh as it involves specifically immigration? Well, our view, uh, and it's been consistent on this front, is that we want to tackle the budget and tackle spending issues uh, by January 19th and to tackle immigration separately and entirely separately. And the reason for that is that when you add must-pass uh, pieces of legislation uh, to must, uh, rather, uh, must pass spending bills. If you add pieces of legislation to them, um, you know, they, they gum up the process and they get in the way of what we're trying to do here, which is to provide a, a two year funding block, certainty for our government, and most importantly, certainly for our national security. We have threats, dangerous threats from North Korea from Iran, uh, from terrorism all over the world. We need to make sure our military is funded, that our national security priorities, like our intelligence agencies, are, are funded and fully funded. And so to provide that certainty, we need to remove other issues from the process. Now, with that said, on immigration, uh, we're going to have a big meeting actually happening um, you know, tomorrow with, the, with uh, members from the House and the Senate, Senate, Democrats and Republicans. And our key here is that with anything that we do on, on deferred action um, for childhood arrivals um, needs to really contain the president's priorities on border security and on uh, ending illegal immigration. The president's talk, talked about uh, pretty extensively, talked about a border wall on the southern border. We want to see 15,000 new uh, 
southern uh, border agents with the Customs and Border Patrol as well as ICE. Uh, we want to see uh, greater interior enforcement, which means a crackdown on sanctuary cities that uh, undermine federal law. Uh, and we want to see uh, more action taken to reform our legal immigration system. So there are all these issues that we want to see action on. They're part of the president's uh, uh, agenda on immigration. And we think that Democrats need to be honest and, and take up some of these issues. Frankly, they've supported them in the past because they're necessary to fix our immigration system, which is broken right now, and to end both the public safety threats and, and the things undermining our economy from illegal immigration. We're speaking to Raj Shaw, who is President Trump's principal deputy press secretary. Raj, the president is reportedly going to visit border wall prototypes in San Diego after the upcoming State of the Union address, which is going to be on January 30th for everybody listening. Uh, can, can we can we count on a wall? Is that I know you mentioned this, but I, I want to try to nail this down. I mean, is that a top? It was such a clear priority for the president during his run. Is it still as much of a priority now going into, well, what's going to be a contentious immigration debate among Congress? Well, let me state uh, out of the gate that um, I think uh, any any travel to the southern border um, at this stage isn't finalized. So I don't want to confirm anything uh, along those lines. Uh, no, it was, it's re- reported in the Daily but, Caller. It may, may change. Sure. 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 Go sure. ahead. Yeah, it may change, and I just want to make that clear. But look, the southern border wall, as well as the other enforcement priorities, are exactly what the president campaigned on. And frankly, as I said earlier, these are things that Democrats have supported in the past. Let's just take a a snapshot in history here. In 2013, during the immigration debate, every single Democrat in the United States Senate, all 54, that includes Chuck Schumer, that includes Dick Durbin, that includes many others that are members of the Senate today, they all voted for a immigration amendment that would have added 40,000 new Border Patrol agents. We're asking for 15,000. It would have had $40 billion in border security funding. We're asking for $18 billion for the wall. It would have uh, ended the visa lottery system, something else the president is calling for. It would have uh, made the initial steps toward merit-based immigration reform, something else the president is calling for. So these are all issues that they have supported in the past. They understand, Democrats understand, these steps are necessary to secure our southern border, to end the flow of illegal drugs, to end the flow of of MS-13 um, gangs and violent members into our country. Um, so these are all essential steps. The only thing that's changed between 2013 and 2018 is that, you know, Donald Trump has become uh, president of the United States and the border is still insecure. Um, and frankly, you know, we've got to ask Democrats, when are they willing to come to the table, work with us and follow through on the issues that they uh, once advocated on and what the, pre- what the president has campaigned on? Raj Shaw is President Trump's principal deputy press secretary, calling us from down at the White House. Raj, appreciate your time very much, sir, and uh, good luck for, for, all, for all Americans listening in 2018. We hope for the best. Uh, thanks a lot, Buck. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break. We come back. Let's speak to Selena Zito about what's going on in rural America and how Trump is trying to shore up his support there. Also, if you're listening, please do Check out the Shields High podcast, which the first episode is up today. Charles Martel, The Hammer, The Battle of Tour, all that. You can check it out on iTunes or you can follow Shields High on the iHeart app. You can subscribe on iTunes. Just type in Shields High. Please do and please spread the word as well. The more of you that tell friends about this, remember, it's just history. I'm, I'm, we do three hours a day of politics, national security and other analysis here Shields High podcast is for history lovers. Uh, It's for people that just want to hear stories from history. So you can share that far and wide. 
please do. The more downloads we get of that podcast, the more episodes and the more production and value we can put into them. So check out Shield Tie on iTunes as well as follow it on the uh, iHeart app. We'll be right back. Okay, team, so President Trump spoke to farmers today. Looks like he is shoring up his uh, support in rural areas, support for the Trump agenda. We've got somebody on the line who knows a whole lot about Trumpism and, in fact, rural America because she goes to parts of the country that voted for Trump that are rural, including the Rust Belt, writes about it, and even has a new book out on it. Selena Zito is with us. She is a New York Post columnist CNN contributor and author of The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Selena, great to have you back. Happy 2018. Happy 2018. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so you wrote a piece a few weeks back. We actually had you on to talk about it in which, well, the title says a lot. Why Depression and Suicide Are Rampant Among American Farmers. Today in Nashville, Tennessee... Uh, Just before we went on air a few hours ago, Trump gave a speech to farmers. What do you think he's trying to get across today and how does this tie into the 2018 Trump agenda? Well, I mean, I think it's really important that he solidifies himself with his base, although I have argued and I think I've argued on your show before um, that if you voted for Trump in 2016, 16, you're still very optimistic, but it never hurts to energize the base and and remind them that you are there for them. I mean, one of the things that made Trump so incredibly successful was is that he went to places and asked people for their vote, even in Tennessee, where, you know, of course, it's very red. So there's the assumption that people are going to, you know, vote for him anyways. But he has this sort of instinct that to to um, go into places, even if you assume you're going to win or a place that he never thought he would win and say, hey, I want your vote. I understand you. I, you know, I get what you're going through and I'm, I'm here for you. It doesn't mean I'm going to fix everything. But I'm listening. Selena, you that's something the Republicans and Democrats haven't done very well for a very long time. You have reported on and looked specifically into the plight of American farmers today from a policy perspective. What is it that America's farmers who are struggling right now? And and I assume that this could also apply for a lot of folks who are just living out in rural America. Uh, But what do they want from farmers specifically? uh, What do they want from the government? And what do folks in rural America want to see from Trump in 2018? Well, a lot of what was really important to them was to uh, clear up regulations and bureaucracies that were impacting their lives and their livelihoods. If you are a farmer in America, the amount of red tape and bureaucracy that you have to go through uh, to maintain your farm is, I can't even begin to explain. I was at a farm in Nebraska, uh, a cattle farm, and the, the farmer brought out this stack that had to be at least three feet high of just his monthly paperwork. And I was astonished by that. And and you and you you have to comply with all of this. I mean, farmers, you know, depend greatly on the loans that they get through the um, the, the credit through the, through the government to to sort of 
patch the holes in their in 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 their budgets to keep their their farms going and and that was is such a drag on their lives it's amazing and, and it's amazing Selena, because because you you think of farmers you think of self-sufficiency you think right. of working the land you don't think of stacks of paperwork that involve federal regulatory agencies but now it's important that people know that that's what's actually involved and obviously that spills over or, or that exists doesn't spill over that exists in a whole lot of the rest of the economy as well. But in terms of rural America, and we're speaking to Selena Zito, everybody. She's a New York Post columnist, author of The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics, which you can get on Amazon or in fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, Selena, the Trump base in 2018, you spoke to them. uh, You've covered this. You were among the first journalists to actually say, hey, instead of making fun of Trump people or making fun of Trump, I'm just going to report and report from places that are going to vote for or have voted for Trump. What does the Trump base want in 2018? Uh, they've, uh, you know, they would love to see the infrastructure bill, and that goes back to the farmers uh, too, as well, and, and a lot of rural America. You know, infrastructure projects not only uh, provide jobs in building them, but they also open up communities that have been overlooked by medium to small to large um, sizes because the roads or the bridges or the sewage was not, you know, uh, able to sustain a company moving in. So it's sort of twofold, right? So you want to you want to attract a big company like Amazon, right? To 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 put their plant, a distribution plant in your town. Well, you better have the sewage, you better have the roads, your, your bridges better be in good condition. And, 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 and so then you're able to attract them. So I think an infrastructure bill is incredibly important for, uh, for Trump to get through. And also broadband. I mean, I cannot explain to you, but you can go like 17, 18 miles along a back road and not have any internet connection for, for that entire period. And that keeps them less connected to commerce. It makes it less than less able to be able to do the same things that you and I take for granted. Selena, if it comes down to it, do you think that the Democrats, seeing that infrastructure is certainly an area where they can get some of what they want, and, and there might even be some some bipartisan wins possible in the infrastructure realm do you think democrats will go along or is the hashtag resistance just too important to them going into the midterms i mean are they just going to obstruct even on infrastructure this year that would be incredibly foolish on their part uh, i think uh because it is they're voting against the best interest of, of the communities that need the help the most and while they might say, well, it's because they added this to it, or it's because that they added that to it, and and there will people be people that buy into that, but I, I don't think that that's the smartest move for for Democrats, especially in 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 a lot of these Midwest towns and rural towns, and uh, you know where where districts could swing either way. They might be more apt to stay with the, their Democrats. If they, um, you know, if they behave in a more bipartisan way and they're able to compromise on things that make their communities better. One more before we let you go, Selena. Uh, you wrote a piece for the Post, New York Post. This county voted for Trump and welcomes hundreds of refugees. Just tell us what that's about. 
Well, this is uh, Erie County, Pennsylvania, one of the counties that were instrumental in putting Donald Trump not over the top, not just over the top in Pennsylvania, but also over the top in the country, is uh, has one of the largest refugee populations, not only in the state, but in, in the country. Uh, it is a tradition they have have done for over 80 years. Last year, I believe that they welcomed 70 or 700 Syrian refugees. But it's really sort of fascinating to see how these refugees have uh, assimilated into the county. They're, they've become either they're either going to school there or they're working one or two jobs. They're doing the same things and have the same sort of hopes and dreams that, you know, people that have been there for generations. Um, but, you know, this county voted for Trump and, and sort of the idea that a Trump voter would not also be supportive, let alone employ these refugees, is sort of like comical to them. And the, and the one guy that I interviewed, his name was Frank Victor, um, who who uh, 20% of his um, workforce in his manufacturing company has um, has refugees as employees. He said, I, he's like, I just can't begin to explain sort of how frustrating it is that people still don't understand who a, a Trump voter is and or who a refugee is. And, and it's sort of, you know, he just sort of laughs at the, um, at the stereotypes. He went to his first um, ceremony um, there, a, um, a citizenship ceremony, and he said, I, I bawled my eyes out. It was one of the most moving things I've ever seen. Everybody should check it out. The New York Post and Selena Zito, New York Post columnist. Great to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. Come back soon. Thanks for having me. See, we're going to roll into a quick break here. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We'll be back with much more. Stay with me. The Franks formed a phalanx of spears and shoulder-to-shoulder held their shields high. Charles's men knew they could expect no quarter from the invading Muslim horde. If they lost, their villages would be burned to the ground, their women and children enslaved or massacred. The front line of infantry braced themselves as the final assault commenced. All right, I mean, that's from the Shields High podcast, everybody, which just went live today. That was a little excerpt of it. Uh, please check it out. I think a lot of you will enjoy it. Uh, today's episode was uh, less than half an hour, so it's an easy thing to uh, listen to on your way to work, on your way home from work, when you're you know, uh, cooking dinner or whatever. Whenever you listen to podcasts, uh, you can do that just on iTunes. Great place to go for it. Subscribe. And also you can uh, listen or follow, well, listen and follow on the iHeart app. So uh, please do check that out. Share it with friends and uh, I'm relying on the team. Many, many of you have been asking for a long time. You've been saying, when will you do an actual history-specific podcast, separate them out from the show? Well, here we are, everybody. Uh, you asked, and ye are receiving. <laughs> so that's where we are. Um, but that means that I also need to have some of you act as the evangelists for these kinds of history podcasts. This co- This podcast specifically, Shields High, so please do. Pass the word on that. And now, before we close out the show for the night, I uh, wanted to get into what we now call Team Buck Roll Call, formerly known as Team Buck Speaks, where we get to hear from all of you and your thoughts on the show over the course of the shows that we do here. 
Page writes in, love your show, Buck. A few weeks ago or months, you had an interesting story about a naval commander who refused to surrender. I can't remember all the details, but wanted to share with my kids, one of whom is named Reagan Cheney. Wow, that's that is a name. Uh, Can you give me the name of the U.S. Navy captain so I can look it up? Thanks. And sorry, this is so vague and random. Congrats on the new time slot. Uh, oh, and she also wrote just in today. Uh, this was that was from a couple of days ago. Just listen to your Shields High podcast. Love the concept. I'm so excited. Thank you for all your hard work. Well, thank you, Paige. The answer to your question about the naval story that I told that actually comes from a speech uh, that Ronald Reagan gave. That's where it became best known. And it is well, the ship. Uh, it, there is now a USS Ingram. I-N-G-R-A-H-A-M because of the incident. And it was Captain Ingram or Ingraham. I'm not sure which I'm not sure which is the correct pronunciation, but who was the one who refused to let the British bully an American subject who requested the um, pardon me, an American citizen who requested the protection of the U.S. flag. Brits had subjects. We had citizens back in the day. I'm just saying. Uh, So Ingram, if you type in. Ingram Reagan speech, it should pop up. It's a great story, and maybe one that I'll share another time here on the show sometime. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Um, ooh, here we go. Uh, oh, whoops, pardon me. I almost I almost read one that I had read before. That'll happen sometimes. Uh, Mark wrote in with the following. Just want to say thanks and keep up the good work. I spent two months in Switzerland for work. And look forward to listening to your podcast every day. Thanks again, and here's to a great 2018. Well, yes, absolutely. 2018 is going to be awesome. And thank you very much for your kind words, buddy. I appreciate it. We got uh, Julie writing in, Hey, Buck, Happy New Year. How do I get on your show to share my story in my book? <laughs> oh, I, I like the I like the uh, the hustle. I like the... The, hey, I'm going to write you email so that you will promote my book on your show. Uh, Julie, I would just say thank you for sharing it. I will check out your pricey on Amazon and self-publishing is uh, a very cool thing to do. And I wish you all the best with it. Elizabeth with the following. Uh, hey, Buck, just want to let you know how excited we are for the first episode of Shields High. Uh, my husband and I can't wait to see what's coming up. Thank you. Well, Elizabeth, I would say thank you for uh, being so kind. And I, I hope you enjoyed it today. I've already gotten some early feedback on it. I'm trying to make this I'm trying to make it move. One thing I will say, and this comes from the team, because I I do read everything you guys write me. This is coming from Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. You can also email us at officialteambuck at gmail dot com. Uh, if you want to call in live, you can do that, too. Uh, but I pay attention to your comments, criticisms, and thoughts on all the things we're doing here in the Freedom Hut. And one of them, from the perspective of history storytelling, was that you didn't want so much specificity, meaning you didn't need to know you know, who the second Grand Duke, third Viceroy's nephew's stable boy's great uncle was in the Battle of whatever. You just kind of want to get into the key salient facts what happened, when it happened, why it matters. And I've really tried to take that approach. I mean, sure, there's going to be some interesting tidbits and where this name comes from or uh, what this individual did in the battle that changed the course of 
uh, of the larger conflict. But overall, I'm trying to make it move quickly and make it very listenable and shareable. Uh, this is this is a, a way of saying they're not going to be four or five hours long. I know there are some great history podcasts that do that. These will be shorter. At least that's the plan for now. Episodic. And we're really going to try to get to it right away. And the focus, as you know, is on the great battles of Western civilization, which gives me a lot of latitude to talk about all kinds of different things. So uh, Ken is, well, Ken wrote about uh, 2,000 or so words here. Ken, thank you. I'm going to read this, but I can't read it on air uh, right now. So Will wrote in a little bit less. He wrote in Shields High. Uh, oh, he also asked me, it would be impressive if you pull off a quick Hillary impersonation while talking to Pete Hegseth on Fox News. What happened? See, I pulled it off there, but on Fox News, I don't think they would find it quite as entertaining. Don't know if they would have you back, though. Probably only something for the Freedom Hut. Well, I will tell you, uh, Will, that it is something that I don't think I could get away with on air at Fox. But I did manage to take a segment that they did on the uh, provenance of the counterintelligence investigation into Trump and his associates with the whole Russia collusion situation. And I uh, nicknamed it on air in real time the deep state family tree involving different FBI and DOJ figures. And that that name, deep state family tree, as I understand it, because they brought me back a, a couple weeks later to talk about it again. But it has now been used on air by a bunch of hosts. That's how they're referring to this graphic that shows the key figures uh, struck and Orr and Mueller and uh, all, all the rest of them on this screen, the deep state family tree. So I, I do try to get creative there over at Fox. Look, if people are kind enough to watch me on air, I'm going to make sure that I try to give them their their time's worth. All right, that's going to be it today. Uh, like I said, podcast for Shields High is up. Podcast for this show is up, too. If you subscribe to this show, you will get that feed. But if you're a live listener, please do subscribe for Shields High. And I'm going to have to repeat our show close here, Shields High.